Greetings from Munich, everyone. This is the Doing Time podcast with Eric and Jake. I am uh, uh, very, very sorry that we did not have a podcast last week. I am traveling through Europe, which I'll talk about in a minute. And so therefore, we couldn't get a decent Wi-Fi connection. So we're hopeful that tonight we will have one. But anyway, I am Eric Williams. I am a professor at Sonoma State University. Hi, I'm uh, Jake, Jacob Mermel. I'm a former student of Eric Williams. And thank you for joining us again on Doing Time Pod. Yes. And uh, just to remind everybody, uh, we have a Facebook group, which you are more than welcome to join. Uh, there's been some nice discussions about pad, past podcasts going on there. We also are on Twitter, at Doing Time Pod. Uh, that's with no G, so at Doing Time Pod. And uh, we would love to hear your feedback, uh, even if it's comments about how irritating and annoying we both are. Uh, we would love to hear what you have to say about the f- podcast. And so Twitter and Facebook are two really good places to do that. All right. Hey, do you want to just start off real quick how the trip's going? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. The trip is is going well. We are in our... Uh, fifth country. Uh, I fell in love with Switzerland and never wanted to leave. Uh, And uh, so we went to London. We went uh, to from there to Paris. Then we went to Amsterdam. Then we spent a night in Germany. Then we went to Switzerland. Now we're back in Germany. Uh, Tomorrow we're going to Austria. And then we uh, head off to Italy and Greece uh, to finish off the trip. I think I may have mentioned <clears throat> on an earlier podcast that uh, Jacob came with me two years ago when we did a very shortened version of this program, and we spent mm. six days in London. And uh, Jake uh, got to lead all of the students all around Britain because <laughs> he is an Anglophile. This is true. And I did my yeah. research. Yes. And none of the other students did. So, uh, But this time we're, we're doing a 31-day trudge through the European continent. Um, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've, you know, I've never been to Germany before. And, uh, this morning I had the privilege of, uh, I don't know how else to put it. I, I, I went to Dachau, the concentration camp. And, uh, I have to say that I, I knew I would be moved by it. I, I didn't know how much I, I, from the minute, you know, we, you, you sort of walk down this path and off to the left, you see, what's left of the railway tracks over where uh, people were, were taken off of the trains and off to the right, you see the, the sign that actually is a replica because the original sign was stolen, but the trans translated uh, sign that says work makes you free. And that was pretty much it for me. I, I kind of lost it at that point. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's it's very sanitized and it's very cleaned up. And, and so it's not, you know, you don't see a lot of broken down buildings. Um, but just the, it's hard to go there and, and, and especially, I think, as a Jew and not think of the fact that had I been born in a different place at a different time, that may have been my fate. And uh, that's, that's that's sort of a hard thing to process. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And, you know, we have nothing like that in this country, thank God. I mean, we have those internment camps. We don't have anything like the uh, concentration camps. I'm sure seeing that firsthand was, you know, a sort of surreal moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's so, it, it, you know, you're in Munich and you're in the suburbs of Munich. And then, you know, uh, 
three steps away, it feels like there's there's this concentration camp that was in existence, you know, really from 1933 to 1945. And, you know, it's I mean, they had no idea what was going on there. Right. That's that's it. I mean, it's hard to imagine that the smell from the crematorium wasn't wafting into the suburbs that are, you know, literally you know, yards, you know, a hundred meters away to use the European measurements. And, uh, you know, I went into the, they, there's, uh, Protestantism, Catholic Catholicism and Judaism each has sort of a memorial at the end of the camp. And I went into the Jewish one and, and there was an Israeli flag on the wall where the Yortzai candles were. And I thought that was interestingly appropriate. It is. Um, some, somebody had hung it up, obviously, and they had left it there. And um, I, I left a stone, and I, I, I said the mourner's Kaddish, and and that made me feel a little bit calmer about the whole thing. Um, and and I was very happy to see, you know, the students we brought had the proper level of, of um, you know, the, the proper <clears throat> level of respect for the place. Um and, uh, and so that was good. You know, um, I, I couldn't bring myself to take a picture inside. It, it somehow felt disrespectful to do so. It just seemed like something that should be experienced rather than photographed. I agree. I think that was a good decision on your behalf. Yeah. I, I was somewhat horrified. I, I have to say on my way out, uh, a father was taking a family photo in front of the gate. Uh, yeah, that's it was, a little interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was ugly, but um, you know we we're also staying in um, what was formerly what was built to be the Olympic Village for the 1972 Olympics. Oh, jeez! And so uh, when uh, my my co professor and I got off the subway today, we we saw there was a map to where all of the different countries were located, and you know we're within you know we're within spitting distance of where the Israeli athletes were killed so it's um it's been an interesting trip to germany to say the least yeah you really make me want to go now i'm sure i'm sure um anyway but it is it it is lovely it's very hot uh and uh you know we um we're having we're having an excellent time and the students seem to be enjoying things so, On a more uplifting yeah. note, what do we want there to talk about tonight? What do we want yes. to talk about tonight? Yes. So, so rather than waiting until the end of the show for Jacob's international rant, uh, I, I think it's it's fair that we start the program off by talking about Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, you are. I mean, everyone's saying it completely yeah. differently, but the, yes, the United Kingdom has left the European Union. That's official, and the two years of negotiation begin today. Yes. And uh, as we saw this morning, David Cameron will step down in October. Yes. And he will not be the one that uh, begins the negotiations. Yes. Uh, so first we're going to talk about Brexit. Uh, then we are going to talk about the Second Amendment and gun control, especially with what happened recently in Orlando and the sit-in in Congress. Uh, and then we're going to finish off by talking about the uh, affirmative action case that was decided by the Supreme Court this week. Uh, so anyway, so yes. uh, since this is an international issue, I think we will start by uh, by getting Jacob's opinion. How are you feeling today about the vote in the UK? I, I am pleased. I know the markets are not as pleased and a lot of people mm-hmm. are not as pleased seeing what happened, but I think in the long term, this is a good thing. I think the reasons for leaving the EU are stronger than reasons to stay in. 
I know that sounds a little uh, strange to a lot of people who, you know, this is the first they're hearing of it, but Britain pays around 17 billion pounds a year to be a member of the EU. This does not sound like a great deal that they're in right now. Mm -hmm. So I think it's time. I think the British people are sick of... You know, and this is going to sound very populist, uh, you know, very populist opinion, but this is sort of a common notion of those who wanted to leave is, hey, look, it, they don't want an army of thousands of unelected bureaucrats in Brussels and Frankfurt setting the decisions for the British people on immigration, trade, jobs, agriculture, things of that nature. And I think they've had enough of it and they want to be independent again. So I think they made a good decision. So uh, let me ask you this, because I, I, I happen to disagree. Okay. Um, I, I, I think that this was foolish. I think that this was emotional. Um, I think it's very interesting that, that the polling is showing that people with who left school uh, either at or before the age of 16 voted overwhelmingly in favor of leaving, and those with university educations voted overwhelmingly to stay. Um, it, it it feels to me like one of these sort of, you know, we don't want these people coming to our country, you know, uh, kind of a very Donald Trump, let's build a wall kind of thing to me um, that I understand the amount that they pay to be a part of the European Union. I think that the immigration issue is probably overblown well, I, think I, think you, that, I think you jumped uh, uh to a hasty generalization saying that this okay. is a, like a build the wall situation i think what okay. it is is britain wants to determine the immigration not the european union because they're in the eu they need to follow the eu immigration policies right. i think they want to have more control and you know they they would like to have more of their commonwealth citizens uh you know it, it coming to the united kingdom not People from you know uh, the, the more new Euro European Union states. Now, it, but isn't this a question of you know? I, it feels like at least the rhetoric that's coming out that's coming out of the UK today. It, it isn't about okay, we want more Australians to come. Uh, it's really it's who they don't want coming and the people that they're not happy being there. When in fact, uh, I was talking to a, a guy downstairs uh, in the hotel earlier. You know, he was making an argument that a lot of these people are taking jobs that that need to be filled. That British that that people who grew up in Britain aren't actually taking those jobs. And right, I know when you go to the coffee houses, who's working there in the tea home, the tea houses in Britain? It's it's you know Poles and Eastern Europeans. Sure, I get that. I understand that. I just think, and I don't think immigration is going to stop. And I think the immigrants <laughs> will stay there. I don't think anything will happen. But I do think that Britain wants to retain more control on who will eventually start moving into the United Kingdom. Okay. And so do you think that? Right. And so do you think, you know, the British pound is at the lowest levels it's been since 1985. I'm wishing we went to London at the end of our trip instead of at the beginning. Um, you know, the 10 pound note I still have in my wallet is worth nothing now. Um, do you think that this is just the market? You, you think the markets are just overreacting? Yes. Yes. I don't think people really, it's two years of negotiation minimum. Right. So I don't think Britain wants to screw the EU, and I don't, and vice versa. I think you know they're both rational bodies. I think they'll come to a decision where 
you know, they'll both get a good deal. And I think Britain's working hard right now. They need a, they're going to have to find a new prime minister who is going to be able to set good terms. But I don't think it, uh, either party wants to screw one another in a sense. And, but aren't, yeah. they, aren't they working from a position of weakness now that they won't have any representation in Brussels and they're essentially, you know, making trade negotiations from, uh, you know, really, really the EU has the power to some, somewhat impose its will. Yeah, I, I guess in a sense you're correct, but also I think the EU should be completely terrified because now look at – you have these parties within Europe are saying, hey, we want a, a referendum to leave the European Union. I think this is more fear from the European Union. They don't want this to happen to other countries. They don't want their sort of European experiment to fall apart. So I don't th- – I think they're going to be very cognizant of the situation with Britain and the United Kingdom. So, so what happens? I, I mean, is this the moment where we see the United Kingdom fall apart? Because it's looking I, I, like Scotland is going to have another referendum on whether or not they want their independence. I, I hope not. And the first minister of Northern Ireland made a statement: No, they're not going to be holding a referendum. I, I'm not sure how the Scots are uh, are looking on this. I'm sure they are now are saying, "Okay, let's let's leave." But, you know, the, I, I really believe that the Treaty of Union of 1706, which, you know, uh, solidified the, the monarchy of Scotland and England, I think that's one of the greatest pieces of political hi- – uh, one of the greatest acts in political history. And I, ho- I would hate to see that come to an end. I really would. But look, at, but look at how close the referendum was in 2014, and now you have the Scots overwhelmingly supporting staying with the EU and the rest of Britain going against their wishes. Yeah, no, If I'm sure if the referendum happened soon, they would leave. I, I really do believe that. I just hope they don't hold another referendum. Um, but I think a referendum would be a mistake. Scotland really is not that wealthy of a nation. They rely heavily on very few industries, fishing, oil, things of that nature. Well, eventually, if the oil is going to dry up, eventually they're going to overfish. And, you know, Scotland relies so heavily on London and Westminster for finance. They, they get overfunded. They're overrepresented in Parliament. They have a great situation right now within the United Kingdom, and I think they would ruin it if they held a referendum soon and left because they'll but just be they, another poor country in the EU. But if they guarantee but, the EU even gives them a spot. Right. But if they, but if they, if they do leave, does that make you rethink – rethink that the whether or not this was a good idea of course but we really don't know (laughs) we we truly don't know at this point i I, yes i think if scotland ends up leaving maybe northern ireland eventually down the road would like to leave i yes i think that would be a mistake because you know breaking up the united kingdom would be uh, detrimental to all all other nations involved right well, I, I, it's going to be very interesting. I think I think you're correct. I think that you know, although many economists seem to agree that this is going to be bad uh, for Britain, especially, uh, I don't think we know. I think that yeah, that it, time will tell. It's the fifth largest economy in the world, right? And 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 what somebody said, I, I heard somebody make an interesting point, which is, um, the, does this affect you know the UK and its and its sort of special relationship with the United States. Does Germany now get that special relationship that the Brits have always had? No, there's a, the relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom will never change. And the reason why language, we speak the same language. We'll always have a very special relationship. And I don't think that will change with them in or out of the European union. They will always be our special partner in everything we do. We have a very common bond. 
Well, it's going to be interesting. I think that this is I, – I don't think it's going to be an overnight disaster, but I think it's it's going to turn out to be uh, a mistake for the British. But, uh, but Jacob, uh, you obviously disagree. So I guess uh, we'll have to see. Time will tell. Time will definitely The tell. crazy thing now is so who will replace David Cameron? That's sort of the big talk right now. And I think the big – the big names out there are Boris Johnson and Theresa May. So we'll just have to see who takes leadership of the Tory party. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's led the Tory party for six years now. Um, there isn't another election until, well, 2020, unless one gets called early. Mm-hmm. Which so, very well could happen. Sure. Sure. Well, it's going to be interesting. It, it, it will be interesting. It, we live in interesting times, but he also uh, has yet to invoke article 50. So there are, there are some some people who say that Parliament might make some maneuvering to to not let this happen, but I have a feeling that's probably not going to be the case. I think it would be within Parliament's interest to make sure this happens because look how many yeah, people I voted think, for. Yeah, sure. I mean, just that, just the just the turnout alone is is you know, and to alienate seventeen million of your citizens who voted in favor of pulling out would be, I think, political suicide for either it, party. It, that's putting it nicely. Yes. Yeah. All right. So moving right along, um, we are going to talk about the Second Amendment. Once again, uh, the United States is in the news for reasons uh, we don't like to be in the news. Uh, There was uh, the largest mass shooting in American history in Orlando uh, a little uh, almost two weeks ago. Uh, 40, is it 49, 49 um, of the patrons at the at the club died uh, over 50 were injured. And so once again, we are left wondering what the hell are we going to do with the guns? Uh, I, as somebody who studies the Supreme court and criminology, don't want to get too involved in a discussion about gun control. What I, what I would rather have is a discussion about the second amendment and what it actually means, because I think that that, that tends to be where things get really confusing. Um, the second amendment has, You know, a first line in it that many people like to ignore and like to forget that says um, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Uh, You know, the Supreme Court has until 2008 has always taken that to mean that that gun ownership is a communal right, as in uh, your right to own a gun is linked to your ability to be a part of this militia. And therefore, gun regulations by either the federal government or the states are, are pretty, pretty broadly allowed. Uh, in 2008, uh, however, let me make it clear also, the Supreme Court also had very few major decisions on the Second Amendment uh, until just six years ago. And it's 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 strange, given, you know, that it is it's not the Third Amendment, which is all but useless about quartering soldiers. This is, you know, an amendment that has come up, at least politically, for a long time. The Supreme Court has has rarely made broad statements about what exactly it thinks the Second Amendment means. In 2008, all of that changed uh, in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller. This is uh, a case having to do with a a a law in the district of Columbia that said, if I were, if I own a handgun, essentially I need to keep it locked. I need to keep it unloaded. Um, 
it, or else, and 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 all but banned the ownership of of handguns in in the District of Columbia, because the District of Columbia laws are decided by Congress. This became a Second Amendment issue, and so for the first time in two thousand and eight, in an opinion written by recently departed Justice Scalia, the court came up with sort of a novel way to look at the Second Amendment. And what Scalia's argument is, is as follows. That that first part of the amendment, the, the talk about the militia, is really just sort of a, a precursor to the second part. That, that the first part just announces the reason why we have this right, and that what really matters is the right itself. And so for the first time in Supreme Court history in 2008, uh, the court announced that there was an individual right to gun ownership under the Second Amendment. And it was an incredibly controversial case. Uh, Justice Stevens wrote um, one of his last great dissents, uh, arguing essentially an originalist viewpoint, saying that when James Madison put this uh put this amendment in the constitution the part about the militia was incredibly important to the the amendment and uh it's that's been sort of the controlling case over the last 6 years and i think in many ways it was it was a rather large victory for the nra and people who argue in favor of gun rights uh i don't think that it's necessarily supreme court dicta that could last forever given that it's one case in one year. Uh, but that's where we stand now that according to the Supreme Court, gun ownership is an individual right. Well, I have a question um, for you. Why don't, uh, sure. why doesn't the decision of the United States versus Miller from the, from the thirties, I believe from the thirties. Yeah. Yeah. What said that, you know, the government, the federal, I believe it's federal and state government, correct? That can, they can limit yes. the, any weapon type, not having yes. a reasonable relationship to what a, a militia. Why isn't that brought up more? All right. So to answer Jacob's question, the United States versus Miller is, it's a very short decision. It's a, what's called a per curiam opinion of the court, which is an opinion with no author. It is, many people read it as being a, a definitive statement on the court's views on the Second Amendment. It doesn't actually say that. All, all it does is uphold the National Firearms Act and say that the federal government has the right to regulate gun ownership. It really isn't until over seven or almost 70 years later in, in Heller that we have the court actually going after the Second Amendment and saying, here's what the Second Amendment means. And so Miller tends to be ignored because it was an opinion that was really only about that one law. So, I, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly easy it's a fairly easy opinion to read. I would argue that Heller in 2008 does reimagine uh, the Second Amendment in a way that the first half basically doesn't count. Um, I, I think Heller was very much a I may have said this before, very much a victory for the NRA. I, it's, it's interesting to me that the, the liberals on the court are the originalists on this issue. I think, uh, that, that when this amendment was put into the constitution, it it very much was about militia membership, that we were concerned that we didn't have a standing army and we wanted to make sure that people had guns in case we got attacked. Right, and this all and this sort of idea does come from the English common law as well, which in the, yeah in the seventeenth century sort of set up the the laws about Britain how they can regulate their militia. 
Yes. And this was very important later in the English Civil War and James II, and then eventually in the Glorious Revolution and and preventing the Catholics from owning firearms. Yet yeah, it, it comes from sort of that branch, so it makes sense why it's sort of vague because the British system changed as well with the times. Right. And mm-hmm. I and I think you know it was. You know, this is the Second Amendment is the most recent amendment to be applied to the states that happened in in, uh, 2010 in the case of McDonald versus Chicago. Um, You know, this is an issue that I think I think people lean on the Constitution and and I think they don't actually read it. I I think that I, I at least think that the Constitution is very clear that the gun ownership is is absolutely linked to being a part of a militia. Now we get to decide what the government is going to do in terms of regulating guns for home ownership. And, you know, if the people who who are in favor, you know, or who are against so-called gun control, you know, if they can win the political day, then they win the political day. But I don't think that the Constitution protects them nearly as much as they claim it does. I uh, you're the expert on this, but uh, no, everything you said makes complete sense. It really does. And I, I think this is, you know, this is one of those issues. You know, I grew up, I grew up in a rural area. Uh, many of my friends hunted. Many of my friends obviously owned guns because they hunted. I, I tend not to have problems with gun ownership in terms of hunting. Um, I, I don't know why the two sides. I mean, I guess it's it's the way American politics, American politics are today is today. I don't know why we can't have reasonable regulations. I, I don't know why it is when somebody wants to regulate gun ownership, the other side says, oh, well, they're taking away all of your guns. Why are people so into guns? Maybe it's because we live in California um, and I live in L.A., so I, I don't really – we don't really have that kind of like – we don't really have like hunting culture or anything here. Right. I, I right. really don't get why people are so into guns. I, yeah, I mean I think – you know, I have, I have a friend who's, who uh, – who goes and, you know, shoots targets and he collects guns and, you know, he, he seems to enjoy it. It's never been something that I enjoy. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I don't understand the issue because it isn't something that, that interests me all that much. Mm -hmm. You know, I just know that, that the data seems to show that if I have a gun in my home, it's much more likely that it's going to shoot somebody who lives in my home than somebody who is coming to rob my home. Yeah, I mean that makes that makes perfect sense, and we've seen it. You always hear these horrible stories about, you know, a kid comes home late and the dad accidentally shoots him, thinking it's a burglar or something like that. It, it's absolutely terrible. And I, I look, I don't, I, I, I honestly, I, I, I'm not, I'm not looking to take away everybody's guns. I'm really not. I, you know, I think you know a gun like an AR-15 like was used in Orlando. I think that's a kind of gun that we should be able to agree shouldn't you know, probably shouldn't be made and should only be in the hands of people in the military. Or like um, a law enforcement agencies, think people like sure. that. Yeah. Very qualified individuals. Absolutely. Not and I, that walks into a store. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that, you know, there are people, you know, I've, I've lots of friends who are in law enforcement, whether it's in corrections or, or policing and, you know, they have weapons and I, I, have no problem with that whatsoever. I think that they're in, they're in, in, in a job that, that in many ways requires them. But, you know, I, I think that, that I, I think that there, at some point, 
I don't understand why we can't sit down and have and create reasonable regulations. I don't know why that's so difficult. It, it's very, it is very interesting how politicized gun gun rights and gun ownership has become. You think after all these mass shootings, all these years, people would say, "Hey, you know, maybe we should reform." I don't know why. Now I I feel like the stigma behind it's even worse than it ever it's ever been. Yeah, I do too, and and I think that it is one of the many issues where. Our country doesn't speak to each other anymore. They speak at each other. And, you know, I, you know, Barack Obama is going to take away all of your guns or Hillary Clinton's going to take away all of your guns. I, I don't know that either one of them had a plan to take away everybody's guns. I think both of them, you know, I think I, I think Barack Obama was hoping to get some semblance of reasonable regulation on gun ownership. And Congress just wasn't going to agree. I do respect it. He tried. He's made tons yeah. of statements about it. He's tried to get things done and people just don't want to hear it. And it's actually pretty sad. Yeah. And, and I, I think I that think, would be a good thing. Yeah. I, I just say, you know, and I, 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 I guess, you know, good for the Democrats for sitting in at the end of a term when – the cameras were shut off and, you know, sort of hanging out there for 25, 26 hours, hoping to get some some uh, some traction on gun control. But, you know, uh, un until the Republicans are willing to sit down at the table and say, let's let's try to be reasonable, reasonable about this. I, I just don't see it happening. It, it was too little too late. If, sure. if they would have done this earlier, I'm sure maybe it would have done something maybe during this session. Um, not right at its conclusion, and it's breaking till July the 5th. So I think yeah. maybe if they did it on July the 5th when they returned or uh, a couple of weeks ago, it would have been more impactful. But, you know, I, I see what they're trying to get at it, and they had all they had great intention with it, but, you know, just didn't, uh, didn't seem to, uh, it's not going to do anything. No, I think it was uh, good Facebook fodder, and, uh, and that was probably about it. And look, I, you know, again, I, I do have some understanding of gun culture. I, you know, I, I am not an extremist on this issue in terms of, you know, banning all handgun ownership or anything like that. I, I just think that, you know, I don't understand why it is that we can't sit down and create reasonable regulations. I, I just don't know why that can't happen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So moving right along, uh, our final issue of the day is uh, the, the, the case this week, uh, Fisher versus the University of Texas. This is the second time Ms. Fisher has come to the Supreme Court arguing that her uh, 2008 rejection from the University of Texas at Austin was uh, a violation of her equal protection rights, even though she has since gone on to go to college and graduate from Louisiana State University. Um, you know, the affirmative action issue in, in the schools, and we'll, we'll just stick with the schools, has been... Um, you know, before the court on several occasions since 1977, uh, this this was a case. I, I think once again there were people who who thought that um, actually there were many people who thought that this case wasn't going to get decided. I think they didn't realize that Justice Kennedy was going to rule in favor of the University of Texas's system. You know, I I, I have a pretty firm belief that um, that programs like the one at the University of Texas, which is which is not certainly a quota system, um, a system that, you know, white, white, black or Hispanic or Asian or anything, the top 10 percent of students in the state of Texas automatically get into the University of Texas at Austin and they get to fill the rest of their freshman class using race as one of several um, factors in deciding who gets in and who doesn't. I think when you're talking especially about a public university, that is there to do what's best 
for the public, I, I, I think that this is something that probably is here to stay, um, much to the chagrin of many people who don't like affirmative action programs. And I actually thought what Kennedy wrote was actually really interesting. Uh, I thought I, I thought his majority opinion was very fascinating because what constitutes as necessary? What's what's necessary to decide to, to make a decision? Right. And I think that that's that's it. I mean, you know, what what we had, you know, in, in 1977, in the case of, uh, of, of Bakke versus the Regents of uh, uh, the University of California, you know, that case established, you know, some guidelines which said, in essence, affirmative action is important. It's important to reach a diversity. That was what what's called a compelling state interest, according to the court, that diversity was compelling. That's the reason we can have it. But that a quota system, which is what existed in that that case, where they actually set aside 16 seats in the medical school class for minorities, that a quota system was not okay. Um, and instead, what, what the court has said over time, uh, and again in, in 2003 in the case of uh, Grutter versus Bollinger from the University of Michigan Law School, that if race is one among many factors used to create uh, what Justice O'Connor called a, a critical mass of students, um, that, that leads to a more diverse student body, then the Supreme Court is fine with that. And um, I think that, that the Fisher case once again reiterated that, that that's, that's what they're going to allow, that they're not going to allow quotas. Uh, they're not going to allow you know, set aside, minority set-aside programs, that, that diversity is the goal, that it's not a goal that's you know, sort of a fix for historical evils. It's, it's about creating a diverse student body and that that's that the Supreme Court is going to continue to be okay with that. And see, I, I, I'm not privy to this information, but when you, when you apply to like a state school like you work at, how much is race taken into consideration there, if any? Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the other thing is that, you know, one of the things that's interesting about this case specifically is that, you know, of the 42 students with uh, lower scores than this woman who were let in, only four of them were minorities. And so, you know, the majority of them were white. And so, you know, do I, is it race that was a factor in letting those 42 students in who had lower test scores or did one of them play the oboe and another one, you know, was a star point guard? I mean, there are factors that universities take into account that have nothing to do with so-called merit all the time. And uh, this seems to be the one that pisses people off to no end. Huh. And see, I read something very interesting in The Atlantic, and they, they brought the whole idea of education – of um, financial uh, – finances, the family's finances. Yeah. Poor families yeah. might be able to fill up the quota, not race because look at it. It's 2016. Um, people had upward mobility from you know in their, within their, the different race groups that are in this country and, and, and nationalities. And maybe it's time to look at, oh, well, maybe poor families should be a quota, not certain minorities. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think that that is, you know, um, coming from a so-called dis disadvantaged background or coming from, a, you know, a, a poor family is one of those things that, that a school certainly can take into consideration. Mm -hmm. You know, look, I, you know, I have students who apply every year to law school and every year they're writing personal statements and every year I say the same thing. You you. 
This is your chance to sell yourself and to show them, show a school why you're interesting, how it is you're going to add something to their student body. And, you know, as a, as a kid who grew up in a very, very white place, Bangor, Maine, you know, Maine being the whitest state in the nation. And, uh, as a kid who went to a very white undergrad at Lehigh university, um, I went to a school for graduate school that calls itself the most diverse university in America, Rutgers university. And I have to say that there, there is a lot to be said for a diversity of opinions in a classroom that, you know, whether it's a, a kid from, you know, a rural area or it's somebody who is, you know, a minority, if it's somebody, you know, who has a different sexual preference than I do, you know, whatever it is. And, and as a teacher, I can tell you that, you know, it, it's unbelievably important to get those diverse opinions in a classroom. And however mm-hmm. they need to achieve those goals, I think it's important. Well, I was definitely the diverse uh, student in your class. I was a conservative Jew from L.A., very diverse. Yes, yes. yes. Actually, in, at Sonoma State, that does make you uh, a minority. It's true. Um, it really does. Especially as a political science major. But, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I just think, you know, I, I teach at a school that, that is not particularly diverse. We have about a 24% uh, Latino population, but our African-American population is, is sort of atrociously small. And I teach affirmative action cases in my class. And, and, you know, when I have, you know, one black kid sitting in the class and I'm teaching about affirmative action, that one kid feels like he or she has to be the voice for all black people. And I, I think that that's a problem. I think that that's, yeah, and that's not fair. And that's not sort fair of despicable. No. And, and, you know, it, it just so happens, you know, Look, diversity is an important thing, especially in education. You know, whether you like minority set aside programs for, you know, federal grants or things like that, you know, that's a that's a very different issue for me. Uh, I think that that an educational experience is better when you have different viewpoints. And I think when, you know, whether it's if I have a class full of liberals, it drives me crazy, too. I mean, anybody who thinks I'm to the left, um, you know, I just I want I want people to disagree in a way that shows me they know how to think. And uh, when you have a classroom full of people who agree on everything or who all come from the same background, it, it leads to a really kind of crappy educational experience in a lot of ways. That's true. That's one of the things you learn in college, how to debate with people, how to converse with people that are different than you and have different opinions. And I think that's a big problem in society today. We don't know how to do that. And no. a more diverse uh, class of opinions and people it benefits everyone, really. Sure. And I, and I think, unfortunately, you know, we also live in a society where I, I think that I think one of the downsides of the Internet um, is that, you know, people's opinions seem to be much more fractured. And I think it's because they tend to go to the websites that agree with them. You know, um, I had I had a, a, a student on on the uh, on the bus today, a student who's on this trip, and and I happen to know this student was homeschooled, and I I know a little bit about his background, and you know he decided on a bus on the way to Dachau to to have the hot take that Hitler was a brilliant man, that despite anything else you could say about him, he was brilliant, and I just thought that's the stupidity of growing up and being homeschooled, you know, like yep. the the only opinions that kid ever heard were the opinions of his parents and his own. And so it made him think, 
you know, oh, this is this is my hot take for the day that on the way to a concentration camp, I'm going to talk about the intelligence of Hitler, you know, um, and, and I think that that's just it's sad. It's sad for him more than anybody else is that he just doesn't realize that there are other opinions out, out there in the world. Yeah, it's a very sad state of affairs that you're telling me that story. It is. He also yeah. – I've also heard that he uh, he was arguing about Hillary Clinton's lesbianism and how that somehow makes her unqualified to be president. And I'm not quite sure how and I'm not quite sure why that matters in any way, shape or form. Or, and it's just sort of nauseating that this is – you know. This is this is what this this person thinks, and it, it really made me sad. I you know I I kind of wished I could have that, had him in a real class instead of just on this trip because I think that, that is the future, my friend. That is sadly the future, and yeah. Uh, yeah so don't don't homeschool your kids, please, because <laughs> they just <laughs> I just can't imagine a worse educational experience than the lack of diversity of me in a room by myself with my parents. Yeah, I never understood like are. are do they have to take a test? Are these are these parents like qualified? I've never really actually understood it. I I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit I haven't looked too much into it, but it's always sort of fascinated me. Like, are these people even qualified to teach these children? I I don't know. I mean, I you know, I as somebody who teaches, I can tell you it's not the easiest job on the face of the planet. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I I think there must be some sort of curriculum that they have to teach, but um, I'm sure there's a whole lot of bullshit thrown in there as well that just just would horrify both of us. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. So, anyway, I think that's uh that's that's kind of all I have for today. Jacob, how about you? Um yeah, no, not too much. I think that was a very I think we touched on some very important topics, very pertinent to the times, and we'll have to wait on all three of them to see uh what what does the future hold. Yeah, I think uh next week uh just for those of you who, who are paying attention, uh, I will try very hard to make sure that, that we get a podcast out there. Um, this is the last week of the Supreme Court's term, so uh, the most controversial decisions uh, are coming down and being polished off as we speak. Uh, we're certainly going to talk about the issue of immigration with the decision this week on that. Um, and, uh, you know, please, if you have any stuff that you're interested in, uh, please throw it out there on the Facebook group or uh, or throw it at us on Twitter because, uh, you know, we we really love to talk about the issues that, that you find important and that you want to hear us talk about from our, you know, massive listening audience. Uh, so I say that facetiously, um, but we really would love to hear uh, anything you have to say and any feedback uh, you want to give us. So anyway, Jacob, I, I hope you are surviving California uh, I hope all is well there and that the uh, NBA draft hasn't driven you too crazy. It's tomorrow. We'll see. Yeah. Yes. Tomorrow that... when the fans call, we will see. Oh goodness. My, well, yes. you know, Jacob's Jacob's beloved Knicks traded for Derek Rose this week. So he's, oh, uh, that he is... finally has hope. And then it's going to end horribly. Like always, anytime we do this, these right. kind of trades, a, a you week know, into we the season and too much. Yeah, a week into the season when he has that surgery, broken. and yeah, exactly. But exactly. my beloved Celtics, I think, did very well at the draft. So I'm, I'm very, I'm a very happy person when it comes to the NBA. People are being hypercritical of the Celtics. It's going to take some time. They will pick up some other people. It will work out for them. Trust me, it will be good. I, I don't know what anyone was expecting them to do. If they weren't going to get a decent offer for the number three pick, they had to pick the best person on the board, according to them. Exactly. 
So anyway, this is not a basketball podcast. Until next week, uh, thank you very much for listening.